Blog Talk Radio. Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is April the 14th, 2017. And as always, I am happy to be joining you at the end of the week. Uh, Depending on your religious uh, beliefs, your religious faiths, I wish you all a very happy Easter and a happy Passover, two joyous holidays on both the uh, Jewish and Christian calendars. And uh, I hope it's a great weekend, a good holiday celebration for you and your families. Uh, you know, we've been looking at the lunacy of sanctuary cities, or at least I have been, for quite some time, as has the Trump administration. And I want to talk about sanctuary cities yet again today at the risk um, of really being a little bit repetitive. But there's so many issues about sanctuary cities Uh, that infuriate me and should infuriate all Americans. And, you know, when you stop and understand why we have immigration laws in the first place and why we have borders in the first place, then you understand that anybody who supports sanctuary cities supports anarchy within the immigration system, and that leaves America vulnerable, leaves Americans vulnerable to our enemies, the spies, the terrorists, the criminals, and to aliens who would displace American workers in the workplace. And that's really what I want to begin focusing on today. But before we get started, I want to remind all of you uh, that I am a retired senior special agent with the former INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And on my shows, I generally call into uh, battle, if you will, my many years of experience with immigration law enforcement and the administration of our immigration laws. You would think this is straightforward. You would think it makes sense. You would think this should have nothing to do with politics. And what stymies me is that uh, somehow the media, the politicians, uh, you name it, they've turned this into a political issue. Um, So I'm going to bring to bear this evening my experience as an INS agent and a little bit of common sense as an American. I'm going to mention some websites I'd love for you to go visit. If you're new to my program, please check out my personal website. Obviously, it's my favorite, Michael Cutler, one word, C-U-T-L-E-R, michaelcutler.net. I write for capsweb.org, Californians for Population Stabilization. I've been writing for them for quite a few years, providing my perspectives. And don't let the word California and Californians for Population Stabilization throw you off If you're not from California or you don't even live on the West Coast, California has become the poster child for sanctuary cities and what happens when immigration laws are abjectly ignored um, and politicians decide that they are above the law and that the needs of the American citizens who live within that state's borders uh, are not to be taken into account when they make political decisions. Hard to imagine a situation as insane as that, but California has been leading the charge, Uh, although uh, New York right behind, and in fact, New York City has the greatest number of illegal aliens 
of any city in the United States. So again, this dispels the notion that we're a country of four border states. In reality, we are a country of 50 border states. Any state that has an international airport lies along the 95,000 miles of America's meandering coastline or is situated on the northern as well as the southern borders are all border states. Uh, who are we leaving out? Uh, additionally, I write for Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com, sponsored by the David Horowitz Freedom Center. And I write for the Social Contract. And in fact, their quarterly journal uh, should be published in the next week or two. I'm very proud that I have the two lead stories for this quarter's journal. And we're going to be taking a hard look at immigration fraud and, not surprisingly, sanctuary cities in my articles. So as soon as that's out, I'll be forwarding the uh, link in my emails. It will be posted on my website, michaelcutler.net. And uh, you can read this journal in its entirety for my favorite price. It's free online. This is about educating people. By the way, I have a request. So let me start out by making the request that if you believe that what you're hearing on my show, if you believe that what you are reading in my articles is helpful to provide the perspectives that the mainstream media refuses to provide, please let your friends and as many people as you can know about it. If you want to use public, um, social media, more the better. However you get the message out there, you can do it with, with uh, smoke signals, you can do it with phone calls, emails, Facebook, I don't care, Twitter, I'm not, I don't Twitter, I'm a techno dinosaur, everyone's been getting after me about this, I really do need to learn to do that, but it's about getting the information to as many people as possible, because you see, knowledge is power. By keeping Americans in the dark, they are keeping Americans powerless. I call this the mushroom treatment. For decades, the American people have been kept in the dark and fed a lot of uh, <clears throat> manure, okay? Fertilizer has to stop. That's the mission for my program. That is the mission behind all that I do. I'm willing to debate the other side. They're not. They know that they can't win this debate because the facts, the law, common sense, and morality all oppose their outrageous positions on the immigration crisis that we confront today. So what do they do? They have safe spaces on college campuses. Who's being made safe in those safe spaces? Anarchists and people who have an agenda to push, one that is not in the best interests of America, Americans, or even lawful immigrants. We'll get to all of that today. So, again, if you're able to, and if you're so inclined, please let as many people know about this program, the Michael Cutler Hour. Please let as many people as possible know about michaelcutler.net, my website, capsweb.org, front page magazine, the social contract. And once in a while, I am asked by Jamie Glazov to um, participate on his YouTube website and provide a video on an issue. And again, guess what we took on uh, this time around? The issue that we, we looked at is the lethal sanctuary cities. It's the Michael Cutler moment. Everybody who comes on the show is given a moment. So it's a 10-minute moment, actually. But I tried to convey as much information, as much rational thoughts, as many rational thoughts as possible, because some people perhaps don't like reading, they don't have time, so they could turn on 
YouTube, or they can go to the Glazov Gang website, and they're able to watch the video, listen to the soundtrack. You know, if you look at the facts, the facts are on our side. The problem is getting the facts out there. The problem is that a narrative has been created over decades, beginning with Jimmy Carter, when he insisted that illegal aliens not be referred to as illegal aliens, but to be referred to as undocumented immigrants. So then it became easy to say, oh, this is about deporting the immigrants. It's not what this is about. <clears throat> immigrants who have been lawfully admitted for permanent residence, and they've been issued the green card, so-called to signify it, are not being deported by the Trump administration, and no one is calling for that to happen. The only way that a lawful immigrant gets deported is if he or she abandons their domicile, that is to say they stay out of the United States for more than a year without getting authorization in advance, and they do that with get, by applying for receiving a reentry permit or by committing serious crimes. Other than that, lawful immigrants, as the name implies, permanently admitted for permanent residence. It's also known as the alien registration receipt card. Now, it's remarkable that lawyers and, and many members of Congress, you should know, are lawyers who are affiliated directly or indirectly with the American Immigration Lawyers Association, both Republicans and Democrats alike. So their agenda, their goal, is to make certain to gather up as many potential clients as possible. So one of the things they've done is to insist that we don't call the alien registration receipt card by that name anymore, but call it the perm card. I guess uh, not having to do with a permanent hairdo, but my mother's generation would go for a perm. Um, this, I guess, refers to permanent residence. But the funny thing is that the requirement for the alien registration receipt card goes back to 1940 when Congress passed the Alien Registration Act. Started out without even a photograph, it was just literally a green cardboard, <clears throat> and it was to comply with the alien registration process. So how did we wind up getting rid of the word alien registration and call it a perm? Again, this is a matter of semantic gamesmanship. It's not about political correctness, but it's about Orwellian practices of altering language to alter perceptions. And many decent Americans have been caught up in this chicanery by being deceived and convinced that somehow anybody who wants the immigration laws enforced and our borders secured is being anti-immigrant. That anybody who knows anything about human nature, psychology, advertising, when you are given a negative, you have a major hurdle to overcome. If you look at the abortion issue, it's pro-choice versus pro-life. Nobody wants to be called anti-something or other. The word anti has negative connotations. And so instead of being honest about the immigration debate, the way that the media has come to portray it, this includes the conservative programs, all too many of them. It's anti-immigrant versus pro-immigrant. And who is pro-immigrant? The immigration anarchist. I want you to stop and think about something. <clears throat> million, we admit roughly a million lawful immigrants every year. They're given those green cards, alien registration receipt cards, as I like to call them, because that was their original official name. And that's more than the rest of the world combined. 
we naturalize hundreds of thousands of new citizens every year, more than the rest of the world combined. But by eliminating the distinction between lawful immigrants and illegal aliens over time, what this has done is to um, cause people to look askance, look negatively upon immigrants. It's outrageous. You know, on the one hand, we're told, well, we're a nation of immigrants. Uh, one of our most cherished uh, logos, if you will, uh, emblems is the Statue of Liberty. <clears throat> America is synonymous with the Statue of Liberty. We're an immigrant country. Well, truth be known, just about every country is an immigrant country because people have tended to cross borders o over the millennia. But in keeping with the honor that we should feel towards aliens who come to America to become Americans, <clears throat> an immigrant is someone that we should be happy to meet. That has changed over time because today, by not drawing a clear distinction between lawful immigrants and illegal aliens, many people believe that the term immigrant is now synonymous with law violator, person who runs borders, person who should not be here. Case. What they have done, the open borders immigration anarchists have done, is to discredit true immigrants. That's one of the most outrageous parts of this whole problem, that a nation that has a, a great tradition of welcoming lawful immigrants <clears throat> is now being torn apart because of this use of language that has been concocted to obfuscate the truth and deceive the American people. So instead of giving credibility to all immigrants, people now hear the word immigrant and presume we're talking about an illegal alien. It's sad. It's infuriating. Uh, I'm first-generation American. My mom came to America ahead of the Holocaust, as did most of the members of her family who were able to get out. Of course, my grandmother, for whom I was named, and other members of my mother's family perished in Europe because we're Jews. So the idea that we now are discrediting lawful immigrants because we're mixing them in with illegal aliens to obfuscate the truth should enrage everybody. And I can tell you that in my travels around the United States, lawful immigrants are furious about this. People who've come to America, got green cards and became citizens are furious about this. But this goes hand in glove with the outrageous notion about Latino voters that somehow Americans who are of Latino ancestry and or ethnicity uh, want something different from all other Americans, you see. Americans who aren't Latinos, well, they may want the border secure, but Latinos, oh, they want all those illegal aliens to come in. They want the drugs and the gangs to come in. They want to lose their jobs to illegal aliens. They don't care about the threat of terrorism. That's what's implied. It's disgusting. It's racism. It's profiling of, of the most grotesque kind. Folks, let's be blunt. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. What matters is that if you are a citizen of this nation, then you probably want our military to keep us safe from our enemies. <clears throat> you want law enforcement to keep our streets safe so that we can go about our daily lives without fear. We want to know that the schools do a good job of educating our children and that any American irrespective of what I call the superficial factors, race, religion, ethnicity, gender, any American willing to work hard, study hard, uh, with a little bit of good luck thrown in for good measure, can write the next great American success story. 
And when people talk about Latino voters, what they're really inferring, stop and think about it. Give this thought. The Latino is a different breed of human being because they don't want that. Somehow they want open borders and they don't care about the consequences. So if you want to pander to the Latino voter, then you've got to go out there and promise to keep the borders open and legalize everybody and violate the findings of the 9-11 Commission. I have to tell you, it's infuriating. It's offensive. It's unfair to Americans of Latino ethnicity. And they, we hear it all the time. You know, the black voter, the Jewish voter, the Christian voter. Listen, that's not what America was built on. That's not the melting pot that we grew up learning about. This is about shattering America into little tiny pieces and factions so we can fight each other while the real crooks in Washington and elsewhere clean us out. Clean us out. Think about the journalists, so-called, so-called, who rant and rave if law enforcement engages in profiling. And I know I've spoken about it before. Forgive me, but I feel compelled to talk about it briefly again this evening. The idea that law enforcement would stop somebody because of a profile. Oh, my God. The journalists go berserk. Riots in the street. But think about it. If a law enforcement officer looks at an overall picture, not just some guy's skin color or some woman's last name, but where they are, what they're doing, how they're reacting, what time of day it is, situational, behavioral stuff then that kind of profiling is reasonable, okay? A guy who's hiding in the shadows uh, on a block behind a tree as a marked police car goes down the block, that person probably is suspicious. Is that profiling? I guess you could say that. Yeah, person hiding behind tree at the side of a police car. Yeah, we're profiling. It's a hiding behind tree person. There's a profile. Okay. If you go into a neighborhood and somebody of different ethnicity from the majority of the neighborhood is there, and it's a, a block where there's heavily, heavy drug trafficking activity, and there's plenty of parking available, and this person with an out-of-town plate on a very fancy sports car keeps circling the block 3 o'clock in the morning, passes 20 parking spaces, but keeps circling the block, you observe that happening. You probably have to figure this guy or this gal might be looking for his or her drug connection. Maybe not. But certainly, proactive policing requires that the police on the scene pull the person over, identify them, run the name, run the license plate, find out what's going on. This is a good chance that that person is looking for a drug connection. Okay? That's profiling. But when people jump up and say, well, well, if you want to appeal to the Latino voter, then you have got to be in favor of no borders legalizing everybody, and the hell with gangs coming into communities. I have to tell you, I have never heard anything more outrageous than that notion. And if you look at the series of murders we've been witnessing here in New York, out on Long Island, MS-13 has been killing young kids. And the kids, by the way, generally are Latinos, as is MS-13. Do you think that the Latino community is happy to go to the funerals of their damn children? This is infuriating to me as, a, as an American, as a father, as a grandfather, as a former federal agent. Gosh, what are they saying? Why would anybody want their children to be at risk? 
This is the narrative that keeps getting played over and over and over again. And if you dare speak out against illegal immigration, then you are branded as a racist, a xenophobe, a nativist, and the list goes on. Back when I was in high school and college, I was the president of a B'nai B'rith group. B'nai B'rith, for those not familiar with it, is a Jewish service organization. It's about the Jewish culture and heritage, but it's also about doing charitable work. One of the things that we did that I'm very proud of, and I was the president of a local chapter of the B'nai B'rith when I was in high school or college, <clears throat> was to go out and collect money for Danny Thomas's St. Jude's Hospital. Danny Thomas was alive way back when. I used to love watching his programs and his commitment to building that incredible hospital to help children who have terrible diseases and treat them for free blew me away. And we all went out as, as an organization and did fundraising for St. Jude's Hospital. Uh, it's an ecumenical way of doing stuff. I mean, St. Jude's, certainly not a Jewish organization. That didn't matter. What mattered was they were doing really good work for children. And we were out there collecting as much money as we could. I was so proud to be a part of that. To this day, when I see those commercials for St. Jude's Hospital, it fills me with a sense of warmth uh, that way back when we were out there collecting money when they were first getting started. Okay? The B'nai B'rith has an organization known as the Anti-Defamation League. They're supposed to hunt out people who are racists and bigots. And guess what? My name appears on their website as being anti-immigrant. Now, I want you to stop and consider how infuriating this all is. Back in the mid-60s, when President Johnson was in the White House, I participated in several visits to Washington where we marched outside the White House, met outside the White House. Um, Martin Luther King, Dr. King, sent Ralph Abernathy to address us. Other people addressed us. There were thousands of us. <clears throat> and we were there to ask President Johnson to convince the Russians to permit Jews and all other religious minorities in Russia to leave and go to countries that would have them so they could practice their religion, irrespective of what their religions might be. I was very proud of that. And Lyndon Johnson did that. And when I became an immigration inspector at John F. Kennedy International Airport, that was the place I first served for the first four years of my 30-year career with the old INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. I was so gratified beyond words to admit refugees into the United States from the old Soviet Union. Why? Because we closed the circle. I had participated in those meetings outside the White House, the demonstrations, whatever you want to call them. And then to be able to be a part of the process of admitting refugees into America warmed my heart. To be told by an arm of the B'nai B'rith that I'm anti-immigrant, the problem with the refugee program today is that we cannot adequately screen the people we are admitting. And we have seen time and again that when we make mistakes of this sort, you wind up with 9-11. You wind up with the Boston Marathon bombing. You wind up with San Bernardino. You wind up with the, the Times Square bomber. Uh, no, he didn't get political asylum. He came as a student. This was Faisal Shahzad from Pakistan at age 20. And then he ultimately concealed his background and his plans became a U.S. citizen, and roughly a year later, sets off a car bomb in Times Square, 2010. And back then, Ray Kelly, the New York City Police Commissioner, identified Faisal Shahzad as a classic example of a homegrown terrorist. Now, I want you to stop and think about it. Homegrown. 
came here at the age of 20 on a student visa from Pakistan. How in the world is that home grown? It's false narrative after false narrative after accusation and false narrative. I'm tired of it. You should be disgusted with it also. The idea that our country has the right, it's called sovereignty, to protect its citizens against people from other countries who might do us harm makes common sense. We do it as individuals. When we ask the guy knocking on our door, who are you? Why do you want to come in? We look for this is about and if you look at the way the media portrays it look at, uh, the politicians have politicized it you know this past week we saw where a doctor was unceremoniously tackled and dragged off an airplane united airlines flight apparently they needed the seat they management that united airlines needed the seat either for a deadheading pass, a crew member deadheading, meaning that they're not working the flight, but they're going to a location where they're going to work a flight or some employee, whatever the story was. United Airlines decided they needed that seat. Now, those of you familiar with taking airplanes, and I take quite a few to do speaking events around the United States, and if you become aware of such opportunities, please reach out to me uh, through my website, michaelcutler.net. You can also contact me through capsweb.org. They will forward the request to me. But if you get on an airplane, sometimes they overbook the plane, so they make sure they fly with a full flight, with full uh, cabin. And, and, boy, that cabin keeps getting fuller and fuller as the seats get smaller and smaller and the spaces between the seats get smaller and smaller. Uh, you feel like you're flying sardine airlines all too frequently. But sometimes they'll say, well, we're, we need the seat. Is there anyone that will, is willing to volunteer? We'll give you $100 if you take the next flight. How about 150 How about 200 How about if we throw in a ticket on another flight uh, anywhere later this year? Whatever. They, and it becomes almost like an auction. And very often, somebody who's known is not in a quick, you know, mad dash to get somewhere will raise their hand. They get paid the money, and, and the person that needs to be on the flight gets on the flight. Well, on this particular flight, they couldn't get any takers. So they decided, I, I, I don't know if they spun the wheel of misfortune or what they did, but they come to this guy and they yank him off the airplane. It's, apparently, he's now suing. He's lawyered up. And good for him. He should, in my judgment. This is outrageous. And they yank him off an airplane. Now, why am I telling you about this? Because this story about that passenger, paying passenger on a flight, being yanked off an airplane, not because he misbehaved, not because he had a weapon, not because he was going berserk on the airplane, sitting in a seat. Imagine the security team runs into the plane and pulls him out of the seat. How would you feel if that happened to you? Needless to say, big, big, big story leading the news everywhere. But something very similar happens every day of the week in the United States. I want you to think about it. Americans going to work, in some cases for many years, working loyally for an employer, unceremoniously grabbed and thrown out of their jobs the way this guy was thrown out of the seat. He had to take a later flight. Okay, it's a big deal, depending on where he was going and why. Could have had profound implications. But think of people who lose their jobs 
not to some airline employee, but to a foreign worker, because that foreign worker is willing to work for less money and worse working conditions. Think about that. That scenario, folks, plays out every day in the week in America hundreds, thousands of times. Doesn't make the news. Doesn't make the news that Americans are being yanked out of that chair, not on an airplane, but in the office where perhaps they've worked for a couple of decades. We saw that with the Disney employees. We saw it at uh, the electric companies in California. We've seen it at HP. We've seen it everywhere, Microsoft. We've seen workers maybe that don't have a desk doing other kinds of work also being yanked out of those jobs, being sent home without a paycheck. Now they got to support their wife and children or their, if it's a woman working, perhaps her husband, her kids, whomever, family, no job, no paycheck, lots of luck. How often does that get covered in the news? I guarantee you, not as frequently as this one guy yanked out of his airplane seat. But is it different? Because in both cases, what you were looking at is lousy treatment of individuals through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own. And when you have a president that says, we're going to change all this, we're going to make certain that Americans get first consideration for jobs. You have Americans who are still out there protesting. I was on a radio show not long ago, and I said, anybody who could protest against what Donald Trump is trying to do reminds me of chickens in a barnyard attending a KFC convention, cheering that the colonel has a new recipe for fried chicken. I mean, you have a president who says, let's not only bring jobs to America, but let's make certain American hands do those jobs. And that's something to protest. This is how powerful that emotional image and the emotional use of language has been in convincing American citizens to go against their own best interests, to go against the best interests of their children and their grandchildren, that it's not xenophobia. It's common sense. It's common sense. You know, I, I wrote an article some time ago, and I said that for America to do well, Americans must do well. That was considered common sense back when the Labor Department ran the Immigration Service. Labor Department's concern was that American workers not be displaced by foreign workers. Back then, labor and the immigration laws were concerned that companies, unscrupulous companies, like the Nimrods that pulled that passenger off the airplane, not yank Americans out of their jobs so they could hire people that would work for lower wages to drive down prevailing wages. Because it's not just the person who loses his or her job, it's the effect that it has on wages being paid in that industry. And Alan Greenspan was clear about it when he testified for Chuck Schumer back on April 30th, 2009. If we could bring in many more H-1B visas, he said, if we could make American highly skilled workers compete with foreign workers, we could get rid of a part of that wage premium they're earning that they get over the, the lesser skill. And the goal here, he claimed, was to reduce wage inequality between Americans with skills and those with lesser skills. Now, what does that really mean? Let's kill the middle class. Can you know something? The news didn't report on it. And I'll tell you something else. I met with some Republican leaders in the Congress. And I said, here's an opportunity. Why don't you take a stand against Greenspan? 
And you know what most of those members of Congress did? They changed the subject. They changed the subject. And why did they change the subject? Because they were in bed with Greenspan and company because they want what he's having. You know, I'll have what she's having. They'll have what he's having. Because all too many members of Congress looking for those very nice campaign contributions have not been voting on behalf of the average American. Now, I want to ask you something else. Was there anything in the news, anything at all in the news, when they talked about the guy yanked off the airplane, where they talked about whether Republicans versus Democrats were outraged over that terrible treatment of that paying passenger? Was there any distinction made? Did you see some news article that said, you know, 83% of all poll Democrats said this is terrible, 38% of Republicans? No, they didn't say that. You know why they didn't say it? Because the story has nothing to do with Democrat or Republican. Do you think it has anything to do with Democrat or Republican when Americans are fired, when Americans lose their job, when American wages are suppressed by unscrupulous employers because they're able to manipulate the immigration system? Is that really a Democrat or Republican issue? See, I, I would tell you something, folks. I think that's just an American issue. But when you put it that way, that all Americans should be united against anybody that would do that to the American worker. So a false narrative had to be created to make it look like a political battle, when it's really a battle for survival. Survival for Americans that don't want to die because we're allowing in criminals and terrorists. Survival for Americans who want to be able to support themselves and their families. Is that a Democratic or a Republican issue? Of course not. So how did it become a Democrat or Republican issue? Because the media and the politicians massaged the issue and turned it into something it never was and never should have been. This has nothing to do with Democrat versus Republican. This is about globalist versus populist. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Trump is a populist. I know there are some Republicans out there that are saying, oh, He's not a true believer. He's not really a conservative. He is a populist. And before you get your knickers all twisted around you, realize that Thomas Jefferson was a populist. The Declaration of Independence begins with the three words, we the people. Is that not a declaration, not only of independence, but a declaration of populism? This is how the story has been twisted. This is how propaganda works. This is straight out of George Orwell, who said that in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Ladies and gentlemen, this is indeed a time of universal deceit. Trying to get the truth out of 90% of the politicians is like trying to get blood out of a rock. It doesn't work. These are lies that have been foisted on the American people for decades. And, you know, if you look at Goebbels and the Third Reich, the Germans got away with so much by the big lie theory. You tell a lie, make it as outrageous as possible. Just make sure to repeat it multiple times a day. And if you keep on lying and keep on repeating it and keep on lying and keep on repeating it, sooner or later the sheeple, the sheeple will come to believe that that lie is true. That's why there are safe spaces on college campuses, because they don't want some guy standing up and questioning the lunacy. Oh, no, they don't, because they have an agenda. 
and the best interests of America and Americans is not part of their agenda. If it was, they wouldn't be doing and saying what they're doing and saying. This is about the destruction of the middle class. This is about taking America and turning it into a third world country. I mean, how many times have we heard from politicians who've said, America, oh, American exceptionalism. You know, the Republicans like to talk about American exceptionalism. Ted Cruz loved to talk about American exceptionalism. And then Ted Cruz turns around and says, oh, and by the way, for America to lead, we're going to import the world's best and brightest. Stop right there. Stop right there. If you truly believe in American exceptionalism, boys and girls, who then are the world's best and brightest? Americans. Americans built the Panama Canal. Americans broke the sound barrier. 1947, Chuck Yeager at the controls of the X-1. Americans launched the first communication satellites. Americans landed men on the moon repeatedly and brought them home safely. No country has yet done that. Americans have launched space probes that have hurtled out of the solar system or are in the process of hurtling out of the solar system. What other country has done that? America launched the first nuclear submarine. We can go down the whole list of the firsts. But now, somehow, to lead, we need the world's best and brightest to come here from some other magical place. Now, look, don't get me wrong. America has benefited tremendously from talented immigrants who came to America. For me, Werner von Braun Braun is a mixed bag. As far as I'm concerned, he was a Nazi war criminal. He ran a slave camp at Penamunda in the Hartz Mountains where he built his V-2 and V-1 rockets, used those weapons to kill civilians in Great Britain. Certainly not a hero. But it was Werner von Braun's brilliance as an engineer that ultimately got American American astronauts on the moon. So, again, you know, Albert Einstein came to America from Germany. Um, Elon Musk came to the United States from South Africa. We go down the list, and they're immigrants, and that's fine. You want to attract the world's best and brightest that way. But when you have someone telling you that we need to bring in hundreds of thousands of H-1B visa holders, hundreds of thousands of these treaty investors, that's all bunk, now, we're not talking about American exceptionalism. We're not talking about bringing in the A-team. By definition, hundreds of thousands of workers aren't exceptional. The only thing exceptional about hundreds of thousands of foreign workers is they will work for exceptionally low wages, you see? So don't confuse the handful of entrepreneurs and geniuses and leaders in particular areas of, of science and industry and so forth. That's something we always want to attract. You know, a good baseball team wants to get the best pitcher and wants to get the best shortstop and so forth. And that's fine. I'm all for it. And I would be the last guy to say, don't do it. But when you flood America with hundreds of thousands of workers so that the employer can go up to that employee and yank him or yank her out of her seat and say to them, by the way, Before you get your severance package, we've just hired this dummy here, but he's going to work for less than you. So if you want the severance package, you'll teach this new employee what you know. That's not exceptional, folks. 
That's called betrayal. That's called betrayal. And don't confuse that army of hundreds of thousands of foreign workers with the individuals who were truly exceptional and brilliant. The Einsteins, the Von Brauns, the Elon Musks. No one's suggesting, I'm certainly not suggesting that we stop that practice. That's something we should do because there are exceptional people who are tremendously talented. And we should be doing everything in our power to attract them to come here. But not when you're looking at an army of worker bees. As I say, the only thing exceptional about those guys and gals is they work for exceptionally low wages under exceptionally difficult conditions. That's not how you further America. That is not how you keep America in its position of leadership in the world. And that's something that we need to understand as a country and as a people. This isn't an all or nothing. This is not an all or nothing. This is about being intelligent about the selections that we make so that we don't displace American workers and yank them out of their seats. Just as it was wrong to do it to that passenger on that airliner, it is no less wrong to do it to hardworking, dedicated American workers. Now, the other thing I want to talk about, and we've heard this from people, and I want to be a mythbuster. And uh, on April the 10th, I wrote an article, and the title, this is from Front Page Magazine, The Case Against Legalizing Unknown Millions of Illegal Aliens. And we've heard it on the radio and TV programs. I don't care what network. We've heard it. You know, Bill O'Reilly has said it. You know, if you have some guy and he hasn't been arrested and he's hardworking, we shouldn't deport him. We should let him stay here. Well, here's the problem. If we were dealing with a couple of thousand such people, we could have a discussion about it. It could be rational and reasonable. The numbers of aliens that we would be t potentially speaking about, folks, is perhaps 30 or 40 million. 30 or 40 million. That means there is no way, I mean zero, no alternative here, no way to interview them. Forget about any notion of any field investigation. The adjudications officers, you may not know this, but I spent the years in the adjudications office, or I know how the system works. If you want to clear the backlog of applications, and believe me, if you're dealing with tens of millions of applications, forget that 12 million figure, and even that would be daunting beyond words. But if you want to keep that backlog manageable, there's no time to deny applications. You can approve an application in 15 or 20 minutes. It's quick. The rubber stamp comes out, ba-boom, you approve it, ba-boom, you approve it, ba-boom, you approve it. When you have to deny an application, understand that probably the first thing that's going to happen is that alien is going to get an attorney, the attorney is going to file an appeal, and now the decision to deny is going to be challenged in court. It will jam up the courts. It will also jam up the adjudications process, because to deny the application, the adjudications officer generally will have to get information from an agent or an investigator who has to go out and knock on doors, there's nobody available to do it. Without that information, it's hard to imagine that a denial would stand up to a challenge. And then after that adjudicator writes the denial, it would have to be sent over for an attorney to check it for legal sufficiency. How many attorneys do we have that can do that? So the weight will be on the shoulders of the adjudications officers to keep that line moving, those of you old enough to remember Lucy at the Bonbon Factory, where 
Lucille Ball and Ethel Mertz, her, her sidekick, had to wrap little morsels of candy that went by in the conveyor belt. And everything was going along real fine until the conveyor belt started to pick up speed. And pretty soon the candy is flying at them at warp speed. So they try eating it and shoving it down their dresses. And the audience is hysterical. Funny, funny segment. It's a classic on TV. That was comedy. This is reality. The only way that those adjudications offices will be able to get rid of the applications would be to approve them. The 9-11 Commission found, and this is part of what I wrote about for the social contract. That will be coming out soon. Um, they found that immigration fraud, people lying on such applications, enabled terrorists to enter the United States and embed themselves hide in plain sight. This would be catastrophic for national security. Furthermore, any alien who gets lawful status would immediately have the absolute unquestioned right to bring all of their minor children to America overnight. Often, families from third world countries have many, many, many children. Not unusual. I arrested aliens from the third world, and I don't care if it was in Asia or Latin America or Africa or the Caribbean. Six, seven, eight kids, not unusual, not outrageous, okay? It would be very unusual in the United States, not unusual there. What happens if suddenly you have more kids coming to America legally than the number of aliens that you would legalize under a massive amnesty program? You would wind up potentially with more kids than the number of aliens we would legalize. Because even if only half of all those aliens or a third of all those aliens had children, they would have more than three per alien or off to the races. How in the world would America cope with that influx of minors? How would our school system deal with it? How would infrastructure deal with it? You could wind up, and by the way, many of the aliens who would participate, contrary to what you're going to hear from the politicians and the journalists, are not yet here. You know, we've seen this on TV. And, and that's why it frustrates me that you don't have former agents on these shows being part of the panel conversation. You see them do that on the networks with any other topic. If the issue is the military, they bring in former Green Berets, and former Navy SEALs, and former generals and colonels, the guys that had battle experience. When they talk about the space program, they bring in former astronauts. When they talk about cancer, they bring in doctors, and biochemists, and so forth. When they talk about a murder, they'll bring in retired homicide detectives or maybe a profiler who worked for the FBI. When was the last time you saw an INS agent or an ICE agent on TV? Not a boss who was way up in the, in the chain of command so they know how to sing the company jingle. See, after 9-11, I was averaging 15 television shows per month on all the networks, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN. Now, if they're tired of my old mug, and I'm frankly tired of my old mug also, that's fine. I don't need to do this. I've done hundreds of television appearances. Why don't they bring in somebody who understands the issue? They don't. Now, do you really think this is an accident? Do you really think that this is a mistake? That, oops, we know we need to bring in an astronaut to talk about the space program or a homicide detective to talk about a murder. But why would we want an immigration agent to talk about immigration? This is done willfully and purposefully. So when you have these talking heads sitting in those studios in front of the cameras, it sounds reasonable. Well, if an immigrant, an undocumented immigrant, 
has been living in America for the last six years, seven years, and they've never been arrested, then we should give them the ability to stay here and make them pay their taxes. This isn't about taxes, folks. Sounds reasonable. Except, how do you know how long an illegal alien has been living in the country? Because if they entered the United States without inspection, they didn't enter undocumented. Undocumented isn't a verb. They entered without inspection. They were never inspected. So there's no record of their entry. We don't know their names. We don't know when they came here. There would be no way to distinguish the alien who came here seven years ago from the alien who came here seven weeks ago unless you have the ability to knock on doors and show people photographs and track down where the person lived. You can do that for a few thousand people. You cannot do that for 10 million, 15 million, 30 million, 40 million. No, you're just going to have to take the word of the, of the person making the application. The dreamers, by the way, hundreds of thousands of aliens up to age 31, by the way, they just have to claim they came by the time they were 16 or before they were 16. The approval rate for those applications last I saw, was in excess of 95% because there's no interviews and there's no field investigation. They don't have the resources to screen hundreds of thousands of applications. So what do you think happens when we're dealing with millions of applications? This free-for-all would be nothing short of a government-sanctioned invasion of the United States of America, period. And the fact that the person has no criminal history, I'm going to tell you something that's going to shock you. I want you to go and read my article on Front Page Magazine. And by the way, if you read it, put it on Facebook, put it on social media. The American people need to know this because the mainstream media won't tell you this. Now, Newsmax, I love doing their shows. They don't pre-interview me. That's one of the ways that you get censorship from the other networks. They send me an email, Mike, are you available tomorrow at 3 o'clock? We want to talk about it. They give me the topic, and no one says, what do you plan to say? Now, I've had this happen to me on all the networks. And then you say, well, I'd like to say this, or I'd like to say that. And then they say, mm, we're going to get back to you. And then they don't, because they control the message. Not at Newsmax. They just give me the freedom to say what I want to say. One American News Network, same thing. I come on the program. I am given the freedom to express myself. Same thing when I've been on Dana Loesch at Blaze TV. The other networks, all of the other networks do pre-interviews, which is nothing short of censorship. Let's be clear about it. So if, if you find this important, please go to Facebook, go to the media, put it out there. I want every American that I could reach to understand what's happening. And you will notice in my latest article about the case against legalizing unknown millions of illegal aliens, I provide links to two articles because it was discovered shortly after 9-11 that three or four of the terrorists, the hijackers, had been stopped by police for motor vehicle violations, in some cases just a couple of days before 9-11, and no one had any idea that these were terrorists. They came into the country falsify their identities, and we were off to the races because we don't know what we don't know. Terrorists come into the country. They keep a low profile because their job is to not 
get anybody to pay attention to them until they do their thing. Somebody once said that an effective spy is somebody who would not attract the attention of a waiter or waitress at a greasy spoon diner. In point of fact, the waiter or waitress might well be that spy. Well, you could say the same exact thing about terrorists. So when you have people coming into the country illegally or violating the laws, don't make a presumption that when you run fingerprints, everything pops up. Oh, we know everything we need to know about this person. It doesn't work that way. The vetting process is, is not flawless, even with extreme vetting, whatever that means. I'm not sure I know President Trump used that term during the campaign. But if you think extreme vetting is significant, realize that aliens who enter the country without inspections are not vetted at all. They purposely snuck in. You know, if you came home, God forbid, and found someone sitting in your living room watching your television, sipping some soda, the first words out of your mouth instinctively are, who are you? What are you doing here? Problem is, with illegal aliens, we don't know. We don't know. And I can tell you that as an agent, I arrested people working in factories where the factory owner said, boy, this guy is great. I give him the keys. He opens for me. I trust him with my safe. We had a case like that years ago at a glass factory before knowingly hiring an illegal alien was against the law. This would have been in the early 80s. And the guy lied about his immigration status, lied about his name. It turned out that this guy had been involved, and he was from British Honduras, as I recall, Belize. Um, He had been involved in a homicide. He pleaded guilty to homicide. So I'm not sure if it was a a flat-out murder, whatever. He did a number of years in jail. He was deported, came back illegally, was prosecuted for unlawful reentry, which is a felony. You know, this nonsense when you run the border, it's not a big deal. Felony if you're reentering. And he then escaped from a federal penitentiary. Imagine that, working in a glass factory. And the owner of the factory had no idea because he smiled at him, this guy, and he was very pleasant and very earnest, and and he was conscientious. And this guy was a guy who had been involved in a homicide. We don't know what we don't know. So anybody who says, well, if they've been living here for X years and so forth, they're not taking into account the inability that the system would have to determine who that person is or when they actually entered the United States. If you believe that an alien who is illegally present in the United States and supposedly has been here for seven years should get lawful status, then you have to agree that anyone who's been here for seven days should also get lawful status because you won't be able to distinguish one from the other. Now, there's a final point that needs to be made before I run out of time. Aliens who um, meet certain qualifications have been here illegally more than 10 years, have immediate family members who would suffer greatly if they were deported, can apply for termination of removal, and they can get residency. But we're talking about small numbers where actual investigations can be conducted. That makes sense. Mass legalization would be mass chaos, and it would, be, it would do irrevocable damage to the United States. I want to thank all of you for spending this hour with me today. Again, if you find the program interesting, tell your friends and neighbors, post it on the Internet, any way you want to get the word out. You know, I always like to remind people that democracy is not a spectator sport. So do your share. 
Let's keep as many of our fellow Americans up to speed and empower them through knowledge. I hope you all have a very happy Passover. Happy Easter. Have a wonderful weekend. And I look forward to seeing you all again next week, same time, right here on the Michael Cutler Hour. Have a great weekend, everybody.